1: Hey, everyone, this is Boomer Esiason, and welcome to another edition of our Game Time Podcast. No less an authority on special teams play than Bill Belichick has hailed today's guest as, quote, as good as a punter as the NFL has seen. Now, the hoodie was referring to fourth down diamond Thomas Morstead of the Miami Dolphins. Thomas, welcome to our Game Time Podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, Thomas, during Miami's bye week, you returned to New Orleans where you formerly played and certainly still have your home there. While your coaches warned the players about having a night on the town, what you did hardly was the kind of night that they envisioned. Please tell our podcast audience what is voluntary suffering and what did you do?
3: Okay, so there's there's an organization called Covenant House. There's locations all over the country, but there's one right outside the French Quarter um, in New Orleans. And... They provide um, a place to stay, um, a lot of resources, uh, therapy, mental health. They get people on their feet. They get them uh, job training. And um, it's just an organization that we've felt like, you know, um, I know everyone has different faith backgrounds. We, we just feel like they're doing God's work and we've tried to support them for a number of years. And uh, it just so happened that it fell in the bye week this year. And they'd asked if I would sleep out to help bring some attention to it. And, you know, if you're a player in the NFL and you do this on a Thursday before a Sunday and you don't play well, that's a really bad look. So I've never done it before, but because it was on the bye week, I agreed to do it. And it was really a great experience. I brought my two boys with me that are eight and seven years old, and we had a cold front hit that night. And it was really good. It spurred a lot of good questions from them. And um, I explained to them that, you know, not everybody gets to sleep in a nice, cozy, warm bed at night. And uh, we all did it together, and uh, they were great. They were champs. They didn't complain about it, and, and hopefully it's an experience that will leave an impact on them to uh, provide a little perspective on, on how good their life is.
1: Yeah, you know, they actually have that sleep out here in New York, and I know the, uh, the GM of the New York Yankees, Brian Cashman, much like you down there in New Orleans, is a big part of that, and he says it, it's more enlightened to him each and every year, the plight of the homeless in our country. Yeah, and I think –
3: you know, you, you, you can't even really replicate it because guess what? At the end of the day, the next day I'm going, I'm going home and I get to sleep in my bed that night. Um, And then the other side of it is, you know, there's, they've got it secured off because people are probably not going to sign up to do this fundraiser if they're in true danger. Um, And so that's something you can't replicate either is you got a police, you know, that are circling you that, you know, you know you're safe and you can sleep safely Um, it's just more of a physical suffering of just, you know, it's cold outside, it's uncomfortable, all those types of things. So it's, it really is hard to, to replicate the true feeling of homelessness because a lot of times it's, it's perpetual. You have no idea when it's going to end or if it will ever end. And you also don't, You, you just have this feeling of, of it's, it's, it's just very stressful in every way imaginable. And so just to provide a little bit of insight and
1: get people to be aware of it. Um, you know, hopefully that does some good. You know, I can tell you that you're very thoughtful and that you're thought out and, and certainly appreciate where you come from. And, you know, I've read where you said that you actually play with a chip on your shoulder, and most punters, you don't think that would be the case. Where did that actually come from, and how does that help?
3: Um I think like a lot of great players, um, you have challenges early that you're well-supported through that – um, harden you a little bit to, you know, the realities of of the you know the job or life or, you know, I mean you you've been in NFL locker rooms you've you've played think about there's so many teammates that you know that they they statistically they shouldn't be here for X Y or Z reason and um and you know my story's different just like your story's different everybody's is different um, but I I was fortunate to be very well supported through some kind of hard times as a young person. And as a professional, I've really had a, about as smooth a ride as you can have. I mean, there's been some a little bit of tough stuff the past year when I got released from the Saints. But, um, it you know, I think that really built me. And uh, like I said, I was just very fortunate to have a stable upbringing, parents that have been there every step of the way. But I think deep down, there's, you, you don't know people that have that grit. Uh, a lot of times kids nowadays don't have – uh, they, they don't have to show it because they haven't had to go, maybe they haven't had to go through something to, to even know that it's there. And I think some people just have something inside of them that, uh, they're not, that, you know, they're just not going to be agreeable to, uh, being told how it's going to be. They're going to make things happen and they're going to, they want to dictate the way their life's going to go. And I certainly feel like I have some of that. I think that's, uh, probably some of that comes from my parents and just the way I was raised. You know, most
1: players try to calm themselves down, Thomas, and mentally and physically you've said that you actually do the opposite and try to create what I thought was really interesting, artificial adrenaline. It seems a bit counterintuitive to me a little bit, but can you explain what that means?
3: Yeah. um, You know, I think a lot of – you think of kickers, a lot of them you think of having ice in their veins, right? They just – they have no pulse. They're just steady. And – Um, I think there's something to that as far as your mental side of your, your clarity and your calmness and confidence in, in big moments. Um, but for me, I am, uh, I, I, I need to, I need that fight or flight feeling, you know, I need that dog chasing after you. That's trying to come bite you at your heels. Like I'm looking to try to create that because I've realized for me that when I have that fight or flight feeling, my body's going to do something that it otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So for instance, if, you know, when I used to kick off, if I would normally hit a 70 yard kickoff in, 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 practice in, in the game, it was 77, 78. It's, it's, there's different juices flowing. You do your body's preparing to do something different. And so for me, once I realized that that anxiety, that sick feeling, that nausea, of game day jitters was my body preparing to do something special that I otherwise couldn't do on a practice field. I was like, man, how can I, I mean, it's like, how can I find this drug that allows me to do this? And, um, some of that's with breathing techniques. Honestly, I carry this little book of pictures of people that, uh, stir me up emotionally. Um, mainly in positive ways, you know, a grandparent, uh, somebody that's invested in me, um, my wife, my kids, my parents, things like that, that I can look at and just see those people and they're watching and, uh, get you a, an emotional charge. And every now and then you need that. It's hard to come out on fire every single day, every single, uh, game, uh, you know, especially when you get in the middle of the season. And so I've found why, found ways to kind of keep myself, um, you know, to provide that for myself and uh it's
1: probably not the norm but a, a lot of the ways I operate are a little unorthodox but they work for me. I was going to say you had the picture of uh coach Gans in your Super Bowl locker, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, that
3: was that was a big
1: one. I mean, like I said he passed away
3: the day after I got drafted and he was such a godsend mentor for me as a 22-year-old kid in college that's that's looking for some, you know, somebody to show me the way. I mean, he never once taught me how to punt a football. He taught me how to live my life, how to, how to love your family and how to, how to you know, value the things that are important. And, and he didn't tell me. I just watched him do it. And it was such a great mentor for me at that time in my life. And uh, I certainly feel like I'm kind of like his last pupil. And uh, you know, the people that, uh, that all played for Frank or worked with him, it's kind of a cool fraternity of, of people that all uh, knew him, so...
1: You know, you talk about mentors. You play with Drew Brees for 12 years, and you said that the future Hall of Famer taught you the importance of focusing on controlling what you can control. He's also talked to you about his experience with regard to retirement. You're 36 now. When do you think you'll know that the train has stopped, and have you started planning for your next act, and if so, will it be football-related?
3: I I don't know what it's going to be. I've had a few people tell me they think I would uh, potentially – have a knack for being an analyst. I don't know that that's something I would love to do, but a, the few people that I know that I've talked to that have done that have said they didn't think that's what they wanted to do and they've ended up being very good at it. So I'm not sure. I'm not letting myself go down that road. Um, this game is awesome and there's nothing like it. And I know that I'll have time to figure it out, uh, when I'm done. And, um, I've you know, been very fortunate. I've, uh, made a lot of money in this league and saved a lot and invested a lot. So I'm not in any sort of financial uh, position to have to do anything. So um, all I know is this is I I don't want to have a regret when I'm done playing. And I know that I still love doing everything that it takes to be the best at this game. I love the training. I love the grind. I love being counted on by my teammates and you know, as well as anybody, there's nothing like that locker room. And as long as I still love doing it, and love all the aspects to doing it, Um, and my family supporting me in doing it. Um, You know, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. Um, I love it, and that's
1: as simple as I can put it. All right, we're continuing our podcast conversation with Thomas Morstead of the Miami Dolphins. Now, Thomas, let's focus in on this current season. After a dozen years in New Orleans, which we'll get into a little bit later on, and after brief stops with both the Jets and the Falcons last year, you signed in Miami. So why did you choose to sign with the Dolphins, and are you enjoying your first season in South Florida? There's a, a multitude of reasons I joined. Um,
3: you know, number one, uh, I thought the team had a shot to be pretty good, and um, it was exci- that, that prospect was exciting. You know, there's a lot of old people that moved down to Florida, and uh, as far <laughs> as the NFL goes, I'm kind of getting into that range and uh, thought it'd be nice to have some warm-weather practices in December. So. Um, and, you know, my kids were fired up about being close to the beach and maybe being able to do some fishing and some, some, uh, you know, some cool activities that we were not, you know, we don't live near the beach in New Orleans. So, um, just lots of different things that all added up. And, uh, and, you know, the dolphins didn't have a punter on the roster when I reached out to see what was going on. And, uh, you know, just made it clear that I was, you know, I wasn't too worried about the, the financial piece. I just needed a commitment from them to, that showed me that they were they were excited about having me and um and so you know it all worked out and i'm glad to be here well
1: they got a hell of a punter high price from coach belichick for sure now your new rookie head coach mike mcdaniel has been a breath of fresh air for the nfl and i mean it's amazing he's turning around the fortunes of the franchise he's made Tua into an all-pro quarterback but he's only about three years older than you. And I'm just thinking that's got to be pretty weird, you know, playing for a coach that young. And how does he compare with the great Sean Payton?
3: Well, I'll answer the last question first. Uh, I think it'd be a disservice to make any comparison to Coach Payton. Um, You know, he's obviously an offensive-minded guy. He's got a head coaching job uh, in his late 30s, kind of like Coach Payton did in New Orleans. So I, I see a lot of similarities there. And he's, uh, having some good success, uh, and we are as a team in his first year. So there's a lot of, uh, unique, uh, things that they, they kind of probably, you can see the correlation. Um, but I, I, I hate comparing uh, the two. Um, I didn't even know coach Payton whenever he was in his first three years. And I was a rookie where I had blinders on, uh, in 2009 and I'm unaware of any of the dynamics of how that works. So I, I kind of know more of coach Payton in his later years, uh, Pretty well, but um, all I know is this: it's uh, it's good to be asked that you know if you're Mike McDaniel to be compared to somebody like him who's had so much success. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, playing um, for him. You know, he is a rookie in a sense because he's a first-year head coach, uh, but he's got some unique um, ways of dealing with players. He's he's kind of vulnerable in his own way, which is 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 uh, kind of you know counter to the uh, tough guy football coach that you kind of have seen historically. And, um, and I think guys have enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I don't think he has much of an ego, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. And, um, you know, it's, I told uh, my wife the other day, I said, it, it feels like I'm one of my buddies from college is coaching this team. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's uh, you can definitely tell it. He's from my generation. And the best thing I could say about him is he's just authentic. He's himself. And uh, I think when you are authentic, uh, guys respect that in the locker room. And at the end of the day, all everybody's concerned about is winning. And if, if you're winning, um, things are good.
1: You know, Thomas, I think you said the right thing. Authentic is the key word. Now I got to ask you about something that happened to you this year, and this was in Week Ten uh, versus the Cleveland Browns. You guys win 39 uh, to 17. Tua bailo and that offense was so efficient you didn't have to punt punt once in that game. And I'm just wondering, like, did you get bored during the game? Or, you know, what were you doing during the game? Kicking in the net over there by yourself? I'm just trying to wonder, what does a punter do in that situation?
3: Sure. Look, I think I'm unorthodox in a lot of ways. Number one, I don't punt into the net ever. So I don't even use the net. I just have a series of drills that I do to stay active and, and stay loose and, and, and that. Um, I would say it's a more of an anxious game for me, the longer it goes without playing, um, and I'm doing more. I'm actually more tired and more exhausted at the end of the game because I'm kind of the best way to com- to make an analogy is kind of like you're getting ready to be dropped off the edge of a bridge with a bungee cord for your first play. You know, there's an anxiety, there's a there's nerves, there's adrenaline, but you don't know when that play is coming, and you don't know if it'll ever come, and just being ready for that, but not not knowing when it's going to happen that just continues to build and build and build as the game goes so um fortunately for me i've got a lot of experience with that i think i've had seven or eight no punt games in new orleans with with drew and coach payton so um it's 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 taught me how to stay locked in and stay ready uh, regardless if i've had any actual uh gameplay in the game
1: You know, when I was reading up on you, and obviously I followed you covering the NFL since you've been a a punter down there in New Orleans, you said rather than building on the previous year's success each year, you like to start over and relearn all the technical aspects of punting and kicking the football. So how does that process actually work? Um, You know, I'm a little bit
3: sentimental. Uh, You know, I'm living the, the most amazing dream that any kid could imagine and, uh, I like to go back to where it all started. So there's a park that's right next to our house in New Orleans. Um, there's no lines on it. There's no – I don't bring a stopwatch out. And I just go out with the kids and I start punting in, in March. And I just focus on hitting spirals. It's kind of like going out to the driving range and just hitting balls. And uh, I don't like to measure myself on the on the football field until a coach has a stopwatch at minicamp or at OTAs. Um, and I just try to keep it pure, you know. Sometimes the lines can deceive a player, and uh, you know, being that I'm uh, an older player and I don't, you know, I don't have the uh, the 65 yard, 5.3 second hang time punts that maybe I used to hit. Uh, being a directional guy is how I how I survive and compete at a high level. And so, getting out onto a field with no lines and just punting at trees or flagpoles and you know, we get the neighborhood kids out there that think it'd be kind of cool to catch punts for me. And I just do that to start off. Um, and so I take a pretty good chunk of time off in the off season from punting. But I'm kind of a gym rat. Uh, I don't really take a break from the season. Like when the season's over, I'm actually kind of ready to get back into a full go uh, lifting and, and training how I like to train. So that's where I measure
1: my, uh, you know, my
3: progress is in the gym.
1: Yeah, and I know you're a 24/7 athlete. We'll get into that as well. We're just getting warmed up with the great Thomas Morstead in a moment. He's going to tell us how getting cut from his high school soccer team ultimately led to becoming an NFL all-pro punter. Welcome back to game time, everyone. During a summer visit to England where his mother is from, one of Thomas Morstead's uncles taught the young lad how to drop kick a rugby ball and lo and behold, exclaimed Uncle Charles, Tom was kicking it like Mary hell. Now your affinity, your natural affinity for kicking led you to take up soccer at Perlin High School just south of Houston. So were you crushed when you were unexpectedly cut your senior year? Yeah, it was, it was actually my junior year.
3: I was, uh, it was the worst day of my life to that point. Um, I, I remember just scanning through the list. I couldn't, I couldn't believe my name wasn't, I was like, I'm not seeing it somewhere here. And, uh, so that actually what got me to, my mom said, you know, you really should try out for the football team and go out and, you know, uh, try to have a good senior year experience. Cause soccer seemed kind of you know, like it wasn't going to be an option and my high school town of Pearland's kind of one of these places where all the stores, you know, they shut down the signs in the window saying, be back after the game. And, uh, and so I just went out and, and gave it a shot and I took over all the jobs as my senior year went along. And, um, you know, I thought that was it whenever the season ended. And the the week after the season ended, I got pulled out of class three times by uh, my coach, because there were different recruiters in 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 to visit and figure out, you know, trying trying to find players, and uh, and he was not a BSer. He said, "Look, you have never lifted weights, you have no polish, but you do things that I haven't seen a high school kid do. Technically, I think if you decided you wanted to commit to doing it, um, you really could have a chance to play in college." And so, once that light bulb. Went off for me. I started, you know, to lift weights and um, just kind of made a commitment. I thought it'd be a cool thing to play on a Saturday one day. And I was a walk-on player at SMU for two years. A tr- you know tryout first day of school guy. And fortunately, at SMU at the time, they really struggled to field enough walk-ons. And I was already accepted in. I got an engineering scholarship to go to, to SMU, and so they didn't have to do any work to get me in. I was already in, so so they were happy to have me. And and I knew you know, they had a junior and uh, two juniors that were punter and kicker starters. So I knew I had two years to kind of, um, you know, develop and work on
1: myself. And, uh, you know, so it was a perfect situation for me. I'm just wondering if the drop kicking skill ever helped you out or in in any way. Uh, It certainly
3: did. Um, I actually, in my third semester at SMU, I was kind of disgruntled, didn't feel like I was getting an opportunity. And uh my strength coach Chuck Fawcett pulled me aside and said listen kid we, you got we've got the bye week this week and they're going to let some younger guys get some reps and practice he said none of the coaches know your name which is a a good thing because you're a punter and you're a walk on but you need to make sure they know who you are at the end of this week and so i made a i went out and started warming up early and i long story short made a bet with our defensive coordinator that i could hit a drop kick and he said well if you hit it from the mustang which is on the 50 yard line 60 yard drop kick field goal I'll get you a rep in practice. And, I, and it was just kind of fate. I mashed it and I turned around and I just okay. said, I hope you're a man of your word. And I walked off and they put me in that day. I made three for three on field goals. And they said, wow, we didn't know you were a field goal kicker. I said, I'm not, I'm a punter. You should let me punt mm-hmm. today. And, and I <laughs> punted. And three weeks later I was on full ride scholarship.
1: Oh, uh, That is awesome. By the way, you and I have something in common. Your boy, Chucky uh, Fawcett, Chucky Fred, was my teammate at the University of Maryland back in the day. No way. Terrapin. Yes. That's right. How about Very that? Cool. Yes. OK. So here, speaking of drop kicks, do you ever want to try one like Doug Flutie did on the last play of his career? Listen, I'll tell you, I when I remember when he
3: did that, I thought that is really cool that he did that. And, and I know Bill Belichick's a huge um, fan of the history of the game and loves special teams. And so that was really cool that he got to do that. Uh, I did have some real envy when uh, Drew got to try it at the Pro Bowl and he missed. Uh, they let Drew Brees try it at the Pro Bowl, and I remember being very envious of that. I would love to have had that shot to do it. So.
1: Now, listen, i got to get to this. Your dad was a big-time cyclist. I didn't realize this. And How many Tour de France's did he r- ride in? He never rode in any of the in any of the tours of uh, France, Italy,
3: or or um, or any of those big European tours. He was a uh, six time state champion in uh, three different states as a kind of a twenties and thirty year old uh, uh, rider, and he was at national championships for uh, thirteen consecutive years in the okay. U.S. And it was really cool for me growing up. You know, everybody thinks their dad's so cool, and and you know they have pride in their dad, but. I saw my dad, you know, um, I saw him do things and compete against kids that were younger than him when, by a lot, when he was in his mid thirties, still racing really well. And it was such a cool experience for me and to be, to, to watch him and that, that sport is all about suffering. And so I saw my dad be a great model of how to be a professional and, uh, it was, I take a lot of pride in that for sure.
1: You know, it's kind of like you are right now playing with those younger kids. You know, the Saints traded up to get you in the fifth round of the 2009 draft. So what was your reaction when GM Mickey Loomis called to tell you the news that you had been drafted by the Saints? Um, I was in total tears.
3: Um, You know, there's so much uncertainty about whether you could get drafted or not. And um, I just remember just breaking down into tears because we're from Houston and uh, I just remember my mom shrieking, you know, five hours down, I 10, you know, like it, other than being a Texan or being a cowboy, it was as close as I could be to home. And, um, you know, I grew up or I played college ball in Dallas where it's super windy. And, uh, Mickey, he, that was the first thing he said to me. He said, Hey, this is uh, Mickey Loomis. Uh, how'd you like to punt and don't for the rest of your career? And I thought <laughs> that sounds, that sounds pretty good. Um, and so it was, it's just, it was the start of a magical, magical, um, 12 years. Um, I wouldn't change any bit of it. It was just, I can't say enough about the organization and how grateful I was to be a part of it.
1: You know, it is a journey for sure. We're talking with Thomas Morstead here on the Game Time Podcast and Thomas on March 4th, 2021, after being a fixture with the Saints for a dozen seasons, you were let go to save the team $2.5 million in cap space. Hey, look, football is a hard business. We all know that. And it can be cold-hearted so how did you get the bad news and how did you break it to your family and friends?
3: I was actually on a parent conference with my wife on Zoom and I got a call from Coach Payton and um, and I just walked out, took the call and came back in and had to tell my, you know, we we stuck out the rest of the parent-teacher conference for another 15 minutes. And then I told my wife that, that I'd been released. It was uh, really, really difficult. Um, and you know it's just one of the realities of the job you know at some point it's going to end and uh um you know it it was it was a it it, this sounds silly but it almost felt like somebody died (laughs) that's how uh tough it was on us Uh, we still live there full time it's our home and it was just a it was a tough time for sure
1: yeah i know you were building your dream home in new orleans at the time and uh, among those who had called you is a buddy of mine by the name of Morton Anderson, the Hall of Fame kicker that he is. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what his message to you was. So
3: he called me two days after, and we played for the same coach, a guy by the name of Frank Gans Sr. Uh, so we have that bond. And he just, I remember I answered the phone. I was at Will Lutz's bachelor party out in Florida uh, having, you know, a good time. And he just said, my good man, I just want to congratulate you on a Hall of Fame Saints career. He said, you know, I had a 13 year career in New Orleans and got released by the Saints and I knew I was not done and I know that you're not done and I can't wait to see how you rebound and you will be rejuvenated uh, because I know you have such a love for the game. Um, and it was just to get such an encouraging message from a guy that's actually been through a similar type of experience. That went on to have a whole nother career after that. Yep, um, it was an amazing gesture
1: from him, and uh, I'll never forget it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's this this game is it can be cruel and it can be fulfilling at the same time, which is weird. And I know that you ended up punting for the Jets for a little bit. You ended up punting for Atlanta. I'm just wondering, going back to New Orleans in an Atlanta Falcons uniform, much like Morton Anderson did. What was that like for you? It was uh, tough. Um, you know, I. I
3: I only got one game in against the saints and it was in Atlanta. And, you know, when you know, 80% of the team still that, that was, uh, but it was also kind of the, it was kind of the end or the final step in the grieving process. Um, You know, the people in the suits upstairs, they were down on the field to come give me a hug. I think everybody was happy that I'd landed on my feet and that I'd gotten healthy and validated uh, that I was still a good player in this league. And I felt that from players, from coaches. And I, I just feel really fortunate to not have a feeling of resentment towards the organization or to anybody in the building because I don't think that's the norm. I think, I think most people leave with a bad taste in their mouth. And, and I just had a really a spirit of gratitude. And, and, uh, and I just am really grateful for that
1: because uh, I know it's not the norm. You know, it's great to hear you say that because you're right. It is not the norm. All right, we're going to be right back with Thomas Morristead to discuss two of the most famous kicks in modern NFL history.
2: How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island
1: Welcome back, everyone. Many of us think about punting in terms of distance, hang time, and accuracy. Thomas Morstead says it's all about winning the play. So, Thomas, how would you explain your concept of winning the play?
3: Um, I just think it's about, you know, you obviously statistically, you keep up with where you stand, whether it's your gross punt average or your net punt average or, you know, inside the 10s, inside the 20s. But to me, it's about winning plays Knowing the situation in the game, what can't happen is, is is so important to know what can't happen in a certain juncture of the game. Um, situational awareness, all those things, and I learned a lot of that from, from Coach Payton, honestly. And um, and so, yeah, you don't you try not to get bent out of shape about having a low average for a game or for a series of time, whether it's you know maybe a month stretch. Um, you just try to win each play as it comes, and you just focus on that. And I think if you can do that you give yourself the best chance to have the best impact for your team.
1: All right, let's talk about two of these uh, kicks that you've had. And one, I feel like I was a part of because prior to Super Bowl 44, I met with Coach Peyton as I was broadcasting the game for Westwood One. And he said, you know, just keep – be aware. Be aware. We're going to do things. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, what kind of things are you going to do? And lo and behold, you guys are down 10-6 at halftime against uh, Peyton Manning and the Colts, of course. And then Sean Payton. Ops to open the second half by having you attempt a surprise onside kick. Now, you're a rookie, and I have to ask you, how confident were you that it would work, and how terrified were you if it didn't work? Uh, Well, those are the two. uh,
3: That's the yin and the yang of the emotions I felt. Um, You know, the halftime is about three times as long at the halftime of the Super Bowl uh, because they've got the whole show and he came in right at the beginning of halftime and said we were running this, and I, I was mortified. I never really thought we would do it, and I just had such a negative energy about it. And at some point, I just said, you know what, I got to I got to get all this out of my system. So I started trying to think of every negative repercussion of this not working, <laughs> and I kind of have like a, you know, a, a psychological examination of myself. Went through, let everything negative pour out, and I was pacing around the locker room, probably 10 minutes left before we're heading out. And I had that, uh, speaking of Frank Gaines Sr., I had a picture of him off my locker because he had passed away the day after I got drafted. And he used to always say that the more aggressive team was normally the team that won. And I thought, well, this is pretty effing aggressive. And it was the first time I relaxed and took a breath, and it, and it made me feel, I felt positive about it. And then I thought, you know, every time Coach called me up at surprise, he just called me up at the in the middle of practice and say, I want the kickoff team out here now. We're running ambush. And every single time he called me up to do it, I hit it how I wanted. And and then all of a sudden I started feeling good. I said, you know, if we make this play, this could be the thing that changes the game for us. And then by the time I went out and started warming up for halftime, uh, you know, before the ha- the second half kickoff, I was very confident and I was – The adrenaline was coursing through my veins. And the only thing that stinks about it is you can't practice it before you do it. So I'm out here hitting balls out, trying to hit balls out the back of the end zone and burn some energy off. And uh, by the time we got to that point, I was very confident. And uh, the last thing that was said to me before I went on the field, John Carney, our uh, kicker turned coach that year, he would always tell me to hit 10%. And he grabbed me by the helmet as I walked out on the field. And he said, said, Timo, 1% (laughs) because he knew I was gassed up. And yeah. uh, thank God we did it. It was a great play for us. And uh, we, it, it certainly felt like we were winning. It was inevitable that we were going to win the game after that play.
1: You know, you certainly won that play. You obviously go on and win the Super Bowl 31-17, to 17, your rookie year. It's a game-changing play. It's a life-changing play, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, you know, being a part of a
3: championship team, uh, unless you've experienced it at this highest level, it, it you you walk with a different confidence for the rest of your life in every other area of your life you know you did something as, as a group that no one can ever take away from you and um, and to for me personally as a specialist you know so much of the game is mental and being able to bring yourself back to that moment in times of doubt when you're not believing in yourself or you're going through something and you can say I, have a history of getting it done when it matters most. Being able to say that to yourself and actually believe that has been a big thing for me in my career. And so I'm very grateful for that, uh, not just for that moment, for that season, but for the rest of my career. It's been a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah, it has been a wonderful thing. Now, I want to take you to another kick. Now, I wish... You had done this when you were with the Jets. Now, I played with the Jets in 1994. We lost a game to the Dolphins, and that game went down as the spike game. That's what it's known around here in these New York parts, the spike game. Yep. And everybody looks at me like, what about the spike game? Now, when you played for the Jets, if you would have done what you did with the Dolphins earlier this year, it would have been amazing. Now, you actually punted out of your end zone, and you know what I'm talking about, and you hit the punt into the butt of Trent Shurfield, your your teammate there, and it became known as the... But punt, and if you would have done that here with the Jets, it would have been synonymous with the butt fumble that Mark Sanchez experienced on a Thanksgiving Day game against the New England Patriots. Uh, did you ever hear from Mark Sanchez about that? And number two, like, what did that feel like when that thing happened?
3: Yeah, Mark tweeted at me after the game saying to stay out of stay out of his lane, uh, which is really <laughs> funny. Um, you know, it's it was such a unique thing. We were backed up on the one inch line and. Um, you know, it was one of those where, do you go for it? Do you go for the punt or do you take the safety? Uh, we were protecting a four point lead. So it's either punt out the back of your end zone and they need a touchdown or you take the safety and you punt, uh, from the 20, uh, on a kickoff and you're now only protecting a two point lead. So they only need a field goal. So, um, you know, who knows what would have happened if we'd have done something different. All I know is this. I'm so glad that ball landed out the back of the end zone as opposed to being caught by them for a touchdown. And, um, and then, you know what, the next very next play, uh, we went out there as a kickoff team and we put that snap behind us and I hit a ball. Uh, I think it was 74 yards, uh, that was caught at the six on the punt after safety and we pinned them at maybe the 20 or 22 and they never got in the field goal range and we won the game. So, as Coach likes to say, I felt like that was competitive greatness by myself and by <laughs> and by the rest of the kickoff team that we were able to, you know, flip the field in such a massive way with very little time left. So I'm glad it, it made it a little easier to swallow the play, uh, the fact that we bounced back and made the big play right after it.
1: You know, Thomas, I love the way you look at things. Somehow you turned the butt punt into a safety that ended up winning the game because of your 74-yard punt on the kickoff after a safety, which is awesome. I love it. The only thing you can do is embrace it. Kind of like Mark Sanchez has done with the butt funnel.
3: Well, listen, it's like being insecure about something in a locker room. The more insecure you are, the more people are going to poke at it. So you just got to accept it and move on, you know? Right, exactly.
1: Alright Thomas, let's briefly discuss another big playoff game you were involved in. Now the Saints 2017 season ended in stunning fashion to say the least when Minnesota Stefan Diggs caught a 61 yard walk off touchdown. Under a then existing NFL rule, the teams were required to line up for a meaningless point after try. Now even though you were injured making a touchdown saving tackle earlier in that game, you were one of only eight Saints who returned to the field. Well,
3: um, look, it was kind of dumb luck that I was the first one out there. I hung out on that field after the game for a long time because I knew the rule. I knew that we had to do an extra point, and I was just hanging out there. And at some point, there was no one left on the field. So I finally started walking off the field. I I guess we're not doing it. And as right as I got in the locker room, um, the referees were running out with the football, and half the guys were in there. You know, they were already in their towels. They'd taken all their gear off, and guys were like, I'm not going back out there. And they said, you know, they were just saying, hey, we need 11 guys. And so I just turned back around and went back out there. I knew they were going to take a knee. Uh, I certainly didn't know that it would get all the, you know, fanfare and notoriety that it got. Um, So anyways, yeah, I just went out there, and I lined up at D Tackle, and uh, Case Keenum's a buddy of mine, and he said, Thomas, we're going to take a knee. I said, you better, because I (laughs) I do not play D-line, obviously, so (laughs) – Um, so yeah, the play happened and then somebody went on Reddit and just said, Hey, they were inspired by me getting hurt, playing through it, coming back out, showing good sportsmanship and said, Hey, Thomas has a, a charity. If you want to donate, you can do that. And, um, within a few hours, it was up to like $5,000 and I just acknowledged it on social media the next day and said, Hey, I've really appreciate all the funds. Um, we're going to, we'll, we'll, we'll donate this back to a Minnesota children's hospital or something like that. Like I didn't feel like the money should come down to new Orleans from all these Vikings fans. And, and then as soon as I did that, it blew up and we raised over $300,000. Wow. Um, it was unbelievable. I think a lot of Vikings fans were hoping for some good mojo cause they were in the NFC championship game and, yeah. uh, and two weeks later, if they had won, they'd have been in the Super Bowl. So I think they were trying to get some good karma going uh, as well. So it was it was a unique thing that happened, um, and something I'll never forget.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, NFL fans in general could be harsh at times, but they also. They can be giving at times, and when they do something like that, much like the Bills Mafia up in Buffalo, and I'm sure down in New Orleans you have fans down there that support your charitable endeavors. So tell me, what is what you give will grow foundation, and why did you give it that name? Uh,
3: again, going back to Frank Gans, that was one of his sayings, what you give will grow and what you keep you lose. And uh, it just always had an impact on me. Uh, you know, Down in New Orleans, just like a lot of these major cities, there's lots of areas of need. Um, and lots of things that need highlighting in these cities and the saints do such a good job. Miss Alicia, uh, Lish, uh, Sheridan down there. She is just, she's the bomb. She gets guys, uh, lined up for school visits and, you know, doing other things in the community where there's, uh, a need and it, they really do a good job of showing you all the different areas of need so that you can see what you may want to focus on or something that really is pulling on you. And so I, um, you know, I, I was able to do a lot of that as a young player and uh, was able to start a foundation and COVID has really derailed a lot of what we did um, for a number of reasons because we do a lot of things with kids in the hospital. So was fundraising was tough with COVID and doing things with immunocompromised kids was tough. So we've, we've kind of been derailed the past few years, but um, it's, it's, it's like anything when you give of your time, you give of your resources. You, you get so much out of it personally. It's been great for me and my wife and our kids to experience and, and just, you know, be, be a, a small little help in the community you live in. It's, it's a really cool thing to do.
1: You, you know, well said. And I, we we're talking about how you're a 24-7 athlete. And I know nutrition is a big part of who you are as a player and one of the reasons why you're successful. And there's also a little company that you found called Main Squeeze Juice Company. How did this first come to your attention and later become part of your business portfolio? Uh, it was a former teammate of mine, Marcus Colston,
3: uh, the quiet storm. Uh, was a, He was our number one receiver for a decade in New Orleans. And when I saw that he had invested in this company and the first store opened up five minutes from my house. So I started going and then I start checking my credit card receipt at the end of every month, realizing yeah. how much I was spending. And uh, so I just, I, you know, I called a meeting with their, uh, the CEO and I don't think they were looking for any help. And I wasn't looking to invest. I was more just kind of Curious to see if I could get some sort of product deal, and after we met, I think we both kind of looked at each other like, you know, we could be a value to each other. And so I bought into a bit of the business, and uh, and have kind of been, was kind of a let's call it a brand ambassador for the for the city of New Orleans and and the surrounding areas. And now the the company has continued to expand, and we're in a bunch of different states with uh, getting close to a hundred locations now. So it's really been a cool thing. It's allowed me to not have much responsibility, have a little skin in the game and learn some of the business stuff uh, passively um, and also being a part of some of their efforts to expand their brand. Um, So it's been a really cool experience for me. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I wouldn't have done it had it been any other type of business that I wasn't really interested in. It was more from the standpoint, it's a personal lifestyle thing for me and um, I'm all into my wellness and, and, all those little, especially as you get older, every little bit helps that cold tub, the good nutrition, the sleep, all the bits and pieces. You got to have it all. And uh, so it's right up my alley.
1: You know, and your former teammate, Marcus Colson, where did he go to school in his college? Hofstra. And who used to practice at Hofstra uh, with their pro days and everything? It used to be us, the New York Jets. Okay. So I know Marcus from my be- from his days back at Hofstra. Very so cool. there you go. Small world, Thomas, I appreciate you joining me today. It was a great interview. I'm Boomer and I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time with former Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback star Cordell Stewart.
2: How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix,